At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are live with the police science doctor, Suzanne Knaba-Nickel. Did I get it right this time? Not bad? Not bad. Not bad? Not bad. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you for, the, for, for making the time and um, uh, adapting to time zones. Coming to us from across the pond in the UK. Suzanne, thanks for being here. Thank you Let, for inviting me. Uh, let's start with you being the police science doctor, which is uh, interesting because this is a arena that I have never had on the show before, um, which is good. All kinds of PhDs, even somebody that had a pair of PhDs, but um, uh, police science is such an interesting field. I got two years of college. Does that count for police science? Hence, what do you cover? <laughs> police science. <laughs> um, the biggest gap in police knowledge right now, uh, because from what I've read, you, you take the complex and make it for the street level police officers so that they can use that police science on the job. Uh, what would you say is the, is the biggest gap for them right now? What is it that they don't know that they should know? Oof. I, I don't know if there's one that you can pick out. Um, there are a lot, a lot of things, but that's in no way a criticism of the police at all. Um, the the thing is, when you interview, um, you know, when you interview or assess people to become police officers and you try to select them, the problem is you're really selecting them for about fifty different jobs, not just one. Um, so, you know, the assessment centers, they have they have role play scenarios, but there are so many things that police will be doing. And, the, you know, the, the recruitment is very skewed. So the recruitment campaigns will often be sirens, testosterone, adrenaline, putting handcuffs on someone, finding drugs. And, and really, when you speak to police officers, and I think the, the data actually back that up, 80 percent of police calls that have come in are, first of all, not related to a crime. And also the majority of calls that come in are about mental health related issues. So, you know, people joke or even say with, you know, with, with um, a serious face that social workers should replace policing in many, in, um, in many calls. And the, the problem is you never know when something escalates and the police are trained to deal with escalation, whereas they're not that trained to deal with social, social work calls and mental health calls, but that's the majority of things they're doing. So where are the gaps? I would say they are everywhere um, in every field because there's not enough training budget. There's not enough training time. There are not enough staff to be able to, to allow officers to, to get all the training they need. And the other thing is that they have some classroom training in the beginning and then none after. One second. Apologies. It's all and right. One uh, so the the main thing that I do is I take some of that knowledge and try to make it accessible to the um, to police. Um, so when I say some of that knowledge, some knowledge on a variety of topics in police science. So it it depends on what I come across. It might be something for patrol officers and how to prevent crime by doing focus patrols. It might be on how to deal with suspects, how to best interview witnesses, how to interview children, um, how to deal with sexual offenses, how to do analysis on geographic profiling to um, 
deliver a starting point in policing. There's a number of things. The problem is that there's so much research and so much knowledge on best practice and what works that is being shared among academics that doesn't even reach the police. So not only don't they have the you know the the, the time and the training and the the access to training, but also the the most current and best knowledge that is being generated by researchers is not being trickled down to policing. So that's what I try to do with police science doctor is just translate those um, like you say complex issues, academic papers, very dry, boring papers sometimes into something and just extract something that the officers on the street can really use. In policing and in the military, it's not uncommon to create a police unit as a team where different people in that team have different skill sets. And sometimes it's just a a fire team. So it's just two people where one has one skill set and the other has another. Um, And then they, an example is paramedics and police Um, in some super dangerous spots where it's just too dangerous for a paramedic to go in. They need armed uh, help (laughs) to, to go in and and help somebody. They, they work in a special team with special training. Do you think there, there would be some sort of room? uh, Because you talked about uh, social workers doing police work. And of course, (laughs) when things get physical, that's not going to be helpful at all. Um, Their social workers are going to get hurt um, or they're not going to be able to intervene as they need to intervene. They're not trained in violence. uh, And that's, such a tough marriage between being trained in violence and de-escalation, being able to to wear both hats at the same time, it's sort of counterintuitive. But do you think that there would be room in in police work to have uh, somebody who is trained in mental health and uh, de-escalation for psychoses, uh, that sort of thing, uh, working hand-in-hand with the police as opposed to either-or? Well, there's there's, um, two ideas here. One is that Perhaps we should be recruiting police officers to be much better on that front. Um, perhaps we should be recruiting people who have the skills to be um, in, in their communication ability and their emotional intelligence and being able to level with the person and understand them and maybe have a social social um, work background or an educational teaching background. Maybe those people should become police officers rather than people who are going for those adverts that have been, you know, advertising the testosterone, because that is, you know, again, um, not encouraging violence, but it's, it's, it's definitely showing a wrong face in policing. So one thing is re- we need to recruit other people. And I've, I've read something somewhere recently that a diverse police um, team or diverse police forces have far fewer violent incidents so if you have more women and more people from different ethnic backgrounds in the police, you you, re- you already reduce confrontation with members of the public. And then the other thing is, um, the other side to that is, should we pair up a social worker, a mental health worker with, with the police patrol and police response? I think, yes, we should. So we should recruit other people with different skill sets. And also we should bring other professions in. And we, we're already doing that in some forces here in the UK where we have um, a mental health nurse perhaps sitting in the control room and then being able to connect it to a caller. Sometimes they go out in the in the cars and respond to certain calls. And obviously the police officer is there in case something should go wrong. But there's a mental health worker there as well who can maybe interact with the person in the first instance. So I think there's different things that should be tried out. And, you know, if you want to be truly evidence-based, you should try one and try the other and compare them um, against each other and see, see what works. And maybe we should just be adopting um, both of these tactics. 
When I took uh, my two years of uh, police science in college, when I thought I wanted to be a police officer and then realized, even though I didn't know I had PTSD, I knew that I didn't trust myself. And how wise was that? Because <laughs> I, was not, I was not the right guy for the street back then. I was too volatile. Um, so somehow that little voice in my head <laughs> uh, took me away from that career. And I'm so glad that it did because it would have been a mess. Um, but the... Those two years were almost all psychology and sociology, and I thought were really, really helpful. I've been able to use that in my life um, the, the whole time. Should there be uh, a minimum two years or even a university degree to, to be a police officer? So this is um, this is a contentious topic here in the UK at the moment because we are actually doing that. So it it has been when this was first introduced by the College of Policing, we've got we've got a different setup. Actually, I'm not too sure what the setup is in Canada, but I know that in America you've got about eighteen thousand different law enforcement agencies with no central oversight. Here in the UK, we've got the Her Majesty's Inspectorate, Inspectorate of Constabularies. Um, they go around the country and inspect um, police, all the police forces on a number of measures. We've got the College of Policing that, um, that does a lot of research and guidance and training. And they, they are two, you know, two national bodies. And th- what has been introduced now is the policing degree. So, for example, if you're a nurse, you you, do, you go through your training. And as you complete your training, you are at the same time complete a degree in nursing, you know, to give you recognition that what you are learning, what you're doing is very complex and it should be a recognized profession. This is now also being introduced in policing. It was misunderstood early on to um, to say that some people thought that you need a degree to join po- in the police, which is not true. There are three different pathways. One of them is where you have a degree and you can enter or you get a degree whilst you do your training in recognition of, you know, I mentioned earlier, there's so many different skills involved. I don't think that's a bad thing. And also it... Um, I have read something that people, police officers who do have a degree, and you know, it doesn't say in what they have to have a degree. They also get um, involved in fewer confrontations than than other police officers. But you know, we will see now as everybody who cuts into policing gets a degree at the same time. So it is being now connected to university studies. I think something like um, psychology should come into it probably a lot more. Um, we're at the very early stages. You know, we're just. Um, I think we started last year with this, so this is very fresh and it obviously will need assessing in the future, but it is probably not a bad thing. Um, many people will argue that you d- you don't need a degree and I can't disagree with that. You you don't need a degree, but you need a lot of good training and in which, I, I don't really care in which form that is imparted on, on the police officer. Some people are naturally more empathic and can connect better with others. But there is some knowledge that you definitely should impart to them, and if you do that, and you know, with, as as part of the normal training that they get as police recruits anyway, or because you're giving them a degree with with their training that they can get after two three years, um, I don't really mind. But there is so much knowledge that police officers should have that would help them with their job, um, and there can always be more. So you know, which, whichever whichever way really works for the for the police agency in question. When I uh, was going down that road years ago, uh, coming fresh out of the army, the, the school of thought was, well, if you were in the infantry, which I was, um, and your job is to kill, that's your job, uh, that it wasn't very, a very good stepping off point to go into policing. And then uh, years later, uh, I, I think uh, people with my kind of training from the military were actually sought after uh, because of being able to have a cool head 
in because um, it's it's a pretty big difference uh, when when something is getting hairy in policing. Um, it's not as hairy as a war zone typically, <laughs> you know. So something that's freaking out one person, uh, somebody who's been in a war zone is like, eh, it's not that bad actually. I'm not too worried about it. Um, uh, do you have? Is there any research or or do you have an opinion on recruiting from the military? Um, I, I don't have any any research on that. I know that obviously. I don't know what the percentage is, but obviously a lot of people who have been in the military do suffer from PTSD because it hasn't been recognized and treated well mm-hmm. enough. Um, then you go into policing and you might get exposed to traumatic incident after incident after incident, which is probably not great for your PTSD. Interestingly, some people may find it a doddle. You know, you've been in a war zone, you're seeing 40 people blown to bits and here you are, you know, dealing with one dangerous person. You might think, you know, if I can handle this, I can handle that. And maybe that's the case for others. Um, maybe it can trigger it can trigger something before. So um, no, I don't really have an informed opinion on whether it's 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 good or not. I don't I don't think there's, there's going to be anything bad about, you know, veterans joining the police because they've they already have a good mindset in terms of um, discipline and, you know, and instructions. Um, it just depends on their mental health. You know, if, if they hopefully if they did have any issues, hopefully they've um, they have been looked after and they're working on it. And hopefully they've they've come, you know, they've come over it. But other than that, why? Why not? Well, one of the advantages of military training is rules of engagement, because it doesn't matter if you're deployed or not. Um, but especially if you have been deployed, rules of engagement is something that you understand deeply because if you get it wrong you go to jail and uh, so you got to get that one right and i was on a united nations peacekeeping tour so i think that would be a uh, a better stepping off point than say afghanistan where it's just straight up combat but either way the rules of engagement would um, uh, be helpful in in police work because even though you may have a urge to act a certain way (laughs) you know what the rules are and you'll stay in that box but um, it's my opinion, if you're already suffering from uh, PTSD, that cup is already full. Um, you're not doing yourself any favors by uh, staying in a high trauma um, community. Uh, you, you've got to get that trauma cup filled and get it down to two-thirds. And somehow, unconsciously, I knew that <laughs> without being able to vocalize it. I just knew that uh, I'm going to punch an old lady in the face or something. Like, <laughs> something's going to catch me off guard. I'm going to do something bad. And um, uh, and I and I hope that that level of self awareness is there for people that are thinking about policing as a career to really look in the rearview mirror to see if they've got their own stuff sorted out before they continue on in a trauma rich environment. Mm-hmm. What are um, uh, some of the uh, say the top three things that um, officers are are typically not aware of that you would like them to be? I think they're probably not aware of as much as they should be of how they the way the, how their experience colors um, and maybe biases all their present perceptions. So, office police officers usually deal with um, humans in the worst point of their lives. So, when somebody comes deals with the police, it's not usually when they're in a happy, good place. It's usually when they're in a time of crisis. And as a police officer, if you if you encounter people in those kind of situations over and over again, 
that can make it very jaded. So there's several things that can happen. One is you build up um, compassion fatigue because it's just too much. You've seen it before. You can't get emotionally involved all the time. Um, you need to keep yourself safe as well. And I've, I've heard someone say, um, I think it was actually police. I, it was it was somebody who, who does work a lot with trauma and crisis. And uh, he said, police officers are really not good at relationships. And actually, I think they have about a 70% divorce rate. And the 30% that are not getting divorced, you know, th that doesn't mean they're, they're happy. They're, they're just not divorced yet. And police officers are also worse at judging whether somebody is lying or not than the a member of the general public. Really? A member of the general really? public, yeah. Usually, so normal normal people not working for police, they usually get it wrong about five, 50% of the time. It's like flipping a coin. You know, you can say that's pretty bad. Police officers are even worse in that they 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 think somebody's lying more often than is actually the case. It's, it's because of the ex kind of experiences they're, they're um, exposed to. So, you know, after a while, and, and this, this happened to me, so I had a number of civilian roles in policing. I worked in, in police forces for over 10 years here in the UK. And one of those was as an investigator. I worked in the custody investigation suite. And, um, you know, we invest, we in, we, 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 did, we did case files and we in, interviewed suspects. And it, it, I noticed it that, you know, when there was um, a domestic case and the, the victim was not forthcoming, you know, supporting the prosecution, I was getting frustrated. And I was thinking, well, you know, how do you want us to help you if you're not going to support the investigation? And that thinking of me was wrong because now I understand why, why victims don't support investigations and why they don't leave. I mean, I did um, a recent event called the Rapid Fire Conference on Behavioral Science and Policing. That was my first live event in April. And I had nine speakers provide 10-minute training sessions on their topics because I don't like it when you go to a conference and somebody talks for an hour and you just switch off. And I, I don't know what they're talking about because it's too boring. I can't, I can't extract <laughs> any learning points because it was just too much waffle. And... Um, so these, that's why I want those short training sessions that are to the point and, you know, specific. And uh, Alison Eaton, she's actually a trainer in gender-related violence. She gave a very good, some very good explanations for why victims don't leave, because everything that you're hoping for you, that you will get is um, tentative and far in the future. Um, but you know exactly what what your situation is and you've got a certainty of, you know, better the devil you know. You've, you've got certainty in what you've got and the... The, the risks that you you have they're very real, but the hope is is not as as tangible as you might want. So there, it's very complex, and there are reasons why victims don't leave. And you have to understand these kind of reasons, and you can't just base everything on your own experience. But people do that. People have to do that. People have to learn from their experience, and so do police officers. Unfortunately, their experience is so heavily bias towards the negative and extreme cases that their assessment and how they deal with situations may not always be ideal. Well, it's because you have a moment, it, just a moment to make quick judgments. You know, it's, it's part of your situational awareness. And when you're doing that on a constant basis, that's where hypervigilance gets stuck on in the, with the on switch and you can't turn it off. When I got back from uh, the war in Croatia, hypervigilance was un 
unbelievable for about five years and it is exhausting constantly doing threat assessment threat assessment and rehearsing killing people in your head who would i kill first it would be that guy because of his body type size weapons of opportunity and um and seems to be the leader so that one would go first and this is how i do it and then i think that would be the second person that would be the second highest on the threat level and i would take that person out through using this technique or or this weapon of opportunity and and you can't turn it off it just doesn't flip and stop and with the police uh they have to be um distrustful <laughs> because um because there are real threats out there every day several times a day especially depending on on the beat that some people are walking um uh, you know the, some parts are are more dangerous than others but you got to yeah. call it staying frosty and uh, well that's that's I'm, I'm glad you didn't become a police officer now no offense but that, that, that <laughs> sounds that sounds exhausting what you've got going on in your head now um I'm, I'm glad you said it was for five years and that it seems to have stopped but it, it it's true so for example there's a big um difference between american and uk policing for example in that in america every police officer police officer is armed and a high you know a much higher rate of the population is armed as well here in the uk as far as I'm aware, the only people who have guns are maybe some farmers or hunters, um, some specially trained response um, officers, armed response officers, very small percentage, and crimi- and some criminals. But generally, we have knife crime. So, and I understand that in America, when an officer does a traffic stop, they are prepared for you know, or they they are assuming that they could get killed. Here, when police do traffic stops, I don't think that sort of comes comes into to the forefront of their mind because just because we haven't had this spiral of you know one side has weapons so the other side has to have weapons and you know in america you can't really undo that even if you try to collect all the weapons people would hide them and you know there would be there would still be weapons in there so the, the culture has escalated so far spiraled into this um arming race that it's a very different um approach to policing and that I think that, like you say, it depends on the patch. So here in the UK, perhaps an officer uh, can allow themselves to be less stressed when they stop a car. In America, perhaps they have to be ready for combat, like you say. I, I don't know, but it's it's it'd it's be not interesting great. to look at, at the numbers. I mean, a wound is a wound, whether you're shot or stabbed. Uh, the that I'm I was familiar with the knife crime statistics in the UK. It's much higher than knife crimes uh, in in the US. I'd like to look at that side by each, though would be interesting but whether you're stabbed or shot you're still wounded by a by a weapon so the mechanism yeah. of injury isn't isn't all that important uh a knife can be just as dangerous as a gun it just has less range absolutely but you have to, i think you have to be a lot closer to have the opportunity to um interact with a with the knife and you don't have that you know thing over a distance where you can shoot people from a few meters away no, that's but true. They're both, they're both dangerous, absolutely. Both dangerous. Well, um, we were told told in uh, uh, in the military that twenty one feet is this is the safe distance uh, from a knife. So uh, if somebody's charging, if you got a gun and they got a knife, uh, they have to be at least twenty one feet away to have any shot whatsoever of being able to actually engage them and and uh, protect yourself with that firearm knives even from uh from a few meters away if somebody rushes you you don't have time and mm. you know and uh and it's probably a longer distance than that it's probably more like five or six meters and um uh and it's been shown again and again and again somebody you got a weapon on your on your hip you got a pistol on your hip holstered and uh 
the action reaction uh, differential from somebody rushing at you with a knife you just don't have much time and uh and and if you don't have if you're a bobby and you, and you don't and all you got is a is a stick or a taser you know uh that that's even tougher because uh it's just not as effective as a weapon if somebody rushes at you with a knife it'd be really mm-hmm. interesting to see those uh, uh the numbers and how many officers are are stabbed or wounded by knives mm. I, I think the the knife crime issue we have in the uk is that people with knives kill other people in the same demographic. Um, I, I don't know. I can't tell you how many officers get injured with, with knives. I don't, I'm not aware that it's that many, but like I said, I haven't checked. All right. Well, uh, let's talk about resilience. Um, you work in the field of resilience to, to help people have more resilience towards uh, post-traumatic stress injuries. That's part of your scope, isn't it? Yes, so um, I've, I've been doing quite a lot of that uh, in, in that field recently. So I held a, a mental health webinar um, and you, people can watch the replay. It was a live event, um, but they can go to the, my main website, which is policesciencedr.com and then just forward slash MH for mental health. And you can see the re- replay of the webinar. So I interviewed 12 really fascinating people. So they were either practitioners or people who had experienced um, mental health issues in in policing themselves, or they were experts who were, who researched in the field. And um, there are so many gaps, and they they seem to be global because the the speakers were from UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the US, and they, they, it's all the same problems that police officers are trained how to look after their physical body. They've got the tools to keep their physical body safe. They've got maybe. Um, Maybe a helmet, they've got a vest, they've got a tool belt, they've got, um, you know, boots, but they're not given the tools to keep their their minds safe. And they're not given um, the opportunities enough on enough appropriate opportunities to to deal with incidents afterwards and to um, they're not they're not shown even how to prepare for night shifts and what to do when you've just had a traumatic incident. Well, you've got a next shift the next day. Is would it not be? Would, would should you be debriefing with your team? But should you know how should you do that best? Because when it is trying to be, when people try to implement it, it can go wrong if it's not done well. So there's a lot missing in terms of mental health training, resilience training, equipping police officers to stay safe. And we've got 25% of the police UK policing workforce already having symptoms of PTSD. What would um, be uh, top two or three practices? Sorry, 20%. My mistake. Sorry. That's it's a high number, uh, and those are just the diagnosed ones. There's there's ones that can hide it. Um, for for resilience, what would be uh, two or three activities or habits rather uh, that people should have in their life to make them more resilient to uh, post traumatic stress injuries? Right. So actually, um, I've I've got um, a workshop series going on, and the last workshop is tomorrow. It's, it was. Um, it's number three of three and we're actually teaching some tools in there because we're currently offering a course on building stress resilience in policing. It's available until this Friday if anyone's interested. Again, policesciencedr.com forward slash GM1 for Ginny McKenna one. That's the, um, she's a um, police stress expert. The Some tools that we've been teaching on these workshops are um, because you're, like we were talking about, um, that the body is in a constant fight or flight um, mode. Because you've got this hypervigilance, you're always looking for a threat. Now, if you if you want to get your body out of that state so you can have a clear mind again, you can start with breathing techniques. And, you know, the whole breathing, meditation, yoga 
you know, people might think that's irrelevant, but it's not because our body is in a state of fight and flight. It's tense. It's ready for action. It's neglecting all the other symptoms, uh, all the other systems in the body that we need. And that's why you're getting um, diseases and immune diseases and higher rates of cancer because you're constantly stressed because your body is not focusing on what it's supposed to be doing. So to get to signal to your body to come out of the stress state, breathing and meditation and yoga does actually help because it signals to the body, it's okay, stand down, stand down. There is not such a threat here. So one technique that we taught is the four, seven, eight breathing. You breathe in for four seconds or four counts. You hold your breath for seven counts and you exhale for eight counts. The thing is, when you breathe in, you raise your heart rate. When you breathe out, you lower your heart rate. So if you want to start this deep, intense breathing, it will it will relax you. The other thing that uh, we were teaching was um, in a stress, in a state of anxiety and disruptive thoughts or um, uh, you know, panicky thoughts, you ground yourself. You make sure you've got both feet planted on the ground, and your when your mind is racing, you give it a task. You let you make it. You force it to focus on something, and you say, "Count five red things in the room," and then anything like that. So you give it a task. It can be some random task. You know, tell me everything that is flat. Show show me this, count that. You need to focus the mind. And that can get you out of this, this cycle of um, intrusive thoughts. And the, the third thing we were teaching was for trauma, for example, nipping it in the butt, you know, before it becomes such an issue. Because you, you might, with your colleagues even, you might experience a traumatic incident at work. But because of what the culture is like in policing, it's not very supportive to, you know, to help each other and allow each other a safe space to discuss things and how it affected you. So if you feel you can't speak to your colleagues, if you feel you can't speak to your loved ones because it might be too intense for them or they wouldn't understand, what you can do is you still get your mind to take all that, all that overwhelming emotion and you again, you focus it to to um, funnel everything down into words. And rather than speaking to someone, you record yourself talking into your phone using a voice memo or you write it down because that th th it is cathartic and it, it can help you process it because now you have to put things into words. You have to take that emotion. You have to turn it into words. So if you don't, if you feel you don't have someone to talk to, just record it into your phone and just make it a habit and you might you might start to notice patterns and you might start you know in how you respond to things how you perceive things and it's you know a phone is a great sounding board it's it's not going to judge it's not going to you know respond in anywhere but it gives you the chance to get everything out those are fantastic tools one of the ones that i uh, share cuz i use it <laughs> when, when i need it when i'm having an anxiety attack is um uh, i use our our patrol skills so in, uh, when you're scanning an environment, you don't scan from left to right because that's how you read, and your mind and your eyes will skip over the uh, the landscape. So we scan from right to left, and we break it into foreground, middle ground, and far ground when we're looking for bad guys in the grass, kind of thing. When we're looking for threats, so uh, because that's in us anyway, I uh, I tell people to get to a window and find something to trace from right, whether it's the outline of a tree, a fence line. Um, I love the mountains, uh, and just trace along the ridges of the mountains, uh, skyline, anything, but do it from right to left and do it slowly and, and scan, pick a line and scan that line. And it, uh, it is, is it, it works really, really well, but it's the okay. sa same thing. It's giving your mind a task 
that um, that works. And then, uh, of course, breathing at the same time. When you're doing both those at the same time, it's uh, it's gotten me out of some pretty ugly panic attacks, including one in Ireland a couple of years ago that was uh, it was a doozy. Um, so resilience. Now let's switch over to recovery. Um, is is that part of your scope, uh, uh, PTSI re, uh, recovery? So the the course we're offering at the moment, um, and only until this Friday, actually. So it might only be your live listeners who get to um, to hear about it. It gives um, it it is designed to equip people with the tools to not develop in you know not let things develop into something worse and but also whatever their state their current state may already be to become you know to to gain some mastery over it not to be at the behest of your emotions but to regain control get clarity and get a clear head so in in terms of recovery the, this online program is a coaching program is you know we call it a course but it's 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 really designed to let you um come back into a lifestyle where you can make clear decisions and respond based on how you want to respond rather than just react and rather than your body putting you into this um, extreme state, you know, it's almost like a state of war, state of, um, you know, martial law is, you know, that's, that's what's going on in your head when you're in the situation and panicking and to get you back into a state where you can decide how you respond. You can calm down if you want to, you can see, you can still stay alert and very clear because you're not distracted by all the, the anxiety and the emotions and the, the sheer panic of it. So that's, that is designed to help people recover from this. And Ginny, who's um, who's doing the course, it's it's her course. Um, it's on my platform, but it's her course. She's actually trained in um, helping people with PTSD as well, and she can work with people one on one. And like I said, she's a police stress expert because many many external provisions. You know, if somebody wanted to go for counseling, coaching, um, psychiatry, they're usually not. Um, that familiar with policing and how policing works. So, you know, the, the the person who goes as a patient will often find they have to explain things, they have to give a background, give a justification for why something was needed to be done a certain way. And um, you don't need to do that with somebody who's been the police themselves. So, you know, the the, the beauty about um, Ginny doing this course is that she's she's been there, she and she has really done done it all, and she's been to the she's been to Helen back with her own mental health, and she's now trying to help to prevent people getting there or trying to get, help them get out of there. That seems to be the course for a lot of people, uh, people, myself included. Somebody that's been through it is still going through it, uh, but I'm well enough to start helping others. Um, do you have also, is that how you ended up in this field as well? No, I... Um well, I was in, in operational policing and um, after I did my master's in investigative psychology and I was then I continued working full time in policing and as I did my PhD part time and I, I got into, you know, it, I, I got interested in doing something with all the knowledge that's out there because I found that there's nobody really channeling it to police practitioners well enough there's there's a lot of great things that are already going on i mean the society of evidence-based policing in various countries and and other organizations and websites but i think to really make it very practical and accessible i i make these relatively short videos you know either on a specific topic like how you know what is crime analysis how you can use mo how to inter- how to interview someone um and they're a lot easier for someone to absorb than, you know, going away and doing the research themselves. So I got interested in doing this myself because I saw that no one else was doing it and I felt it needed to be done. 
What about uh, the area of peer support? Is that something that you've studied or are involved with? So we had um, people speaking about peer support at the mental health conference. Um, we had a really good example from uh, in Illinois. So there's a there's a police force. I can actually show you. He he sent me a badge, which I was really happy to receive. Evanston in Illinois, and he was talking about the peer support program. And we've got a national such network here in the UK where um, there's a charity, um, mental health charity called MIND, and they've got the MIND Blue Light program where they actually train police officers to be peer supporters for each other. So that's something that's great, and that's something that every police agency or force should have because because of all the advantages it provides. The, the thing is that you also need to have external provisions available because some officers just do not want to speak to anyone internally. And I know that with peer support, you can also be paired up with someone from a neighboring police agency or force if you if you are worried about the lack of anonymity or you're not trusting the confidentiality they, they are confidential and they are anonymous but if you feel you know like we said earlier police officers are very cynical they many just don't trust anything internal so you need to offer external provisions as well the but ev- peer support is, is great the efficacy of peer support is a topic that keeps coming up and um, kim barthel when i had her on the show from her opinion that not only does it have efficacy, but it's probably one of the most powerful tools that you could possibly have. And I believe that because of the power of connection, which is a coaching program I'm putting uh, together, that's that's a part of it. And when you're disconnected from yourself, uh, you're more disconnected from others in society. And um, that sense of connection that you can find in peer support, if it's done right, peer support can also be really bad. Um, if, if people are just not trauma-informed, if there's a, any sort of judgment uh, in a peer support group, um, people giving unsolicited advice, trying to, f- trying to fix things that when they should be listening, uh, what would you say from, from your experience or some of the do's and don'ts of peer support? I think one of the, the, the probably, probably the most overriding principle is to make, provide a safe space. And that has several components. One is the confidentiality. So really make sure that the person knows and feels they can trust and they can they can be open. And then you need to stick to that. So you can't then just go then go, you know, gossiping to to others. You really need to have utmost confidentiality. Um, you need to, like you say, you need to be very um, open and listening mainly because sometimes that's, that's all that people need and like i said with your phone you know if nobody else is listening speak into your phone um so listening skills from from what i heard are very um important in in peer support and then mainly signposting i mean peer supporters are not there to treat or diagnose or heal they're there as a first line perhaps to write okay so this this is what's been going on what what do you think i should do what are my options what could i do they can signpost they can just listen and they can give the advice that's been asked for so the it really has to be completely non-judgmental. So you can't have someone without the necessary empathic and um, listening skills doing that because we people are just not going to open up to them. There seems to be different types of peer support. I hear um, people are calling themselves a peer supporter, um, but there's many different ways that that can manifest. So uh, a motorcycle club can be a form of peer support or, or any group activity. When nobody's actually talking about mental health or mental health tools, just the act of riding itself is the mental health tool. 
um, but being among uh, people that you feel get you, that are culturally competent, that understand, that have been through something similar, just being in their presence in a way that is safe and non-judgmental, just being there, playing darts, like anything. The original uh, uh, peer support, I can't remember if it was World War I or, or after World War II, but was the legions, the British legions, the Royal Canadian legions, and that is uh, something that unfortunately has completely fallen apart and nobody goes to the legions anymore uh, for a sense of community and peer support. But that was the original idea because uh, coming back from World War II, uh, anybody that hadn't been deployed, they had no way to relate to you. You know, they would say, hey, did you ever kill anybody? And, uh, and all these questions that you should never ask. And the only place that people felt um, they would either isolate, which is very common still, isolate and stay away from people um, and, and stay in their bubble. Or uh, they would go to places like the Legion where they could have a sense of uh, familiarity and, and camaraderie and be with people that uh, they feel understood with that within that group but um thanks for being here today i think we're about there i think we've got it covered good I'm I'm, glad. well thank you for having me it's, it's a very important um topic that um that you're working on here and you know i it's it's it's, it's plainly obvious just from listening to you how necessary it is so um thank you for doing that Thank you. And um, thank you for the work that, that you're doing. I, I suspect I might have you back on the show again in the future. And if you ever want me as a guest, just let me know. Uh, that, that would be an honor. Excellent. All right. So please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring. Thank you.